Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, in January, Richard Nixon was inaugurated as the 37th President of the United States. On July the 20th, a man walked on the moon. And on a farm in upstate New York, 350,000 people gathered at a music festival known as Woodstock. And also in that year, 250,000 people marched on Washington, D.C. in opposition to United States involvement in the Vietnam War. And the price of a gallon of gasoline was 35 cents. The year was 1969 a year that brought a decade to a close that was marked by the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, a year that ended a decade in which we witnessed Beatlemania on the Ed Sullivan Show, the first Super Bowl, a decade that was engaged in the struggle for civil rights, and a decade that endured the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Such were the times that I was born into on October the 30th, 1969. This morning we're going to begin a new series called The Triumph of God in the Ministry of Elijah the Prophet. But before we actually consider Elijah's ministry, it's helpful for us to gain some understanding about the time during which he served and what characterized the times in which he lived. And so in order to gain some understanding of the life and the times of Elijah the prophet. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 16 this morning, just before Elijah arrives on the scene in 1 Kings 17. Specifically, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to that passage. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you ought to be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And our text is on page 170 of those paperback Bibles. But again, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33 this morning. So if you're able, I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's word. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, sorry, wrong, wrong verse. Let me, let me actually read verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, if we are going to understand the times of Elijah the prophet, we need to understand that he served in Israel during a time that they were stumbling toward exile. Elijah finds himself in the midst of a declining kingdom, a divided kingdom, and a depraved kingdom. 
And so we're going to look at each of those three features this morning, beginning with a declining kingdom. The books of First and Second Kings, you may know or you may not know, were originally viewed as one book. And while we don't know who authored the book of Kings, it seems that the books of First and Second Kings were written during a time that the people were in exile. It seems that they were written while the people were in exile. The people of Israel were exiled by the Assyrians in the year 722 and were allowed to return with a decree by King Cyrus in the year 538. So sometime between the years 720 and 540, the books of First and Second Kings were written. And it seems that they were written, at least in part, to answer this question. If the Lord had promised this land to his people by covenant oath, why is it that the people found themselves outside of that land in exile at all? In other words, we could put the question this way. Had God proven unfaithful to his covenant promises to Israel since the people were in exile? And Kings answers that question, no. The people were in exile not because God was unfaithful to the covenant, but they were in exile because the people themselves had been unfaithful to the covenant. And this is the context, the historical context of Elijah's ministry. Elijah probably was ministering in Israel around 860 BC, so about 140 years before the exile. He was sent to stem the tide of this stumbling toward exile, but to see how it's a declining kingdom at the time Elijah arrives on the scene, we have to go before the time of Elijah. And so the book of 1 Kings actually begins with King Solomon, the son of King David, who succeeds his father David on the throne. And it's important that we see that the rule of King Solomon actually represents the apex, the top, the height of Israel's national glory. The rule of Solomon is the high point of Israel's national glory because under the rule and reign of Solomon, the people are united in one kingdom under justice and righteousness. A permanent dwelling place of the Lord to dwell with his people and have his presence there has been established in Jerusalem with the building of the temple by King Solomon. The surrounding nations around Israel had been subdued by David and so the people enjoy a sense of peace and stability in the kingdom. And more than that, the kings of the nations around them are actually coming to Israel to hear the wisdom and to see the glory of Israel's king. Listen to how the author of 1 Kings describes this period of prosperity in 1 Kings chapter 4. This is what we read there. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. These are the glory days of Israel under Solomon. But these glory days are actually short-lived because cracks in the foundation almost from the outset lead eventually to Israel's national and spiritual decline. We actually read very early on that Solomon had married Pharaoh's daughter. So Solomon had married an Egyptian wife and then later as Solomon grows older, we learn that Solomon loved many foreign women. And the problem with this is not that they were foreign women but that they served foreign gods. And so these foreign wives of Solomon 
drew his heart away from the Lord so that he worshiped other gods besides the Lord. And with this, shadows begin to fall in Israel as they begin this slow decline into exile. They begin stumbling into exile in their decline. And actually, one of the consequences of Solomon's sins that's announced by the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 11, just five chapters earlier than from what we read already today, is the splitting of the kingdom in two. That's one of the consequences of Solomon's sin. So by the time Elijah arrives on the scene, he enters not just a declining kingdom, but also a divided kingdom. The division of the kingdom is recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 12, just four chapters earlier than what we've read, when we read about Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is allowed to retain one tribe of the kingdom over which he rules, and that's the tribe of Judah. All the other tribes are given to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who the Lord calls to also walk faithfully before him in covenant obedience. We're going to see that Jeroboam fails to do this. But this results in a divided kingdom along the lines of north and south, very similar to the way our own country was divided along northern and southern lines during the Civil War. But from this point forward, we're going to be reading about a kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria and a kingdom of Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem. And it's this background that allows us to understand some, con- some potentially confusing reports that we're going to read about through the entire rest of First and Second Kings. It can be very confusing. In fact, we get one of them here in verse 29. Without understanding this division of the kingdom, these things are hard to make sense of. But if you look in verse 29 in our text, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. So Asa was ruling in Judah in the south, not in Israel in the north. This is a time of divided kingdom. But in that 38th year, there's an overlap with the kings of Israel. And so in the 38th year of Asa, who was king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, which was in the north. And so Ahab reigned over Israel in Samaria. He did not reign over Judah in Jerusalem. At the time he ascended the throne, Asa was ruling in Judah in the capital of Jerusalem. So we have to keep those things straight or a lot of this stuff will not make sense to us. Now, Israel and Judah both constitute one covenant people of God still, but the kingdom is divided. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But God's people are not just divided geographically or governmentally at the time of Elijah the prophet. They're also divided religiously in their worship as well. Because the center of the Lord's worship had already been established under the reign of Solomon with the construction of the temple. And so that was in Jerusalem in the south. That's where the people were to go to worship the Lord. Jerusalem, which was in Judah. Now this caused some concern by Jeroboam, the son of Debat, who was ruling in the north because he feared that if the people regularly returned to Jerusalem to worship, that the hearts of the people would be turned away from him who was ruling in the north. And so to remedy this, He instituted an alternative form of worship and he set up two golden calves, one in Dan, which was in the far northern part of Israel, and another in the city called Bethel, which was in the southern part of the northern region of Israel. So with this institution of these golden calves in Bethel and Dan, he attempted to prevent the people from having to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. But Jeroboam essentially sets up and establishes corrupted worship. If the idea of a golden calf seems ominous to you, 
because it makes you think of the idolatry committed by the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt when Aaron made a golden calf. That's intentional. This is corrupted worship. And because Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, sets up this corrupted worship, he is presented to us throughout the rest of First and Second Kings as the quintessential sinner. We read time and time again through the books of First and Second Kings that King so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he followed or walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So this guy is held out to us as this, this definitive sinner in the north as he institutes this corrupt worship. Now it's probably worth pointing out also at this time that we read of an uninterrupted line of Davidic kings in the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. An uninterrupted line of Davidic kings. Um, some of those kings are good kings, some of those kings are wicked kings, but they're all Davidic. They're all descendants of David. There's one dynasty in the south because the Lord was faithful to his promise to have a son of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, in Judah. This was not the situation in the north. The north was characterized by a series of unstable and wicked regimes. And it's in the northern territory of Israel, in the midst of this wickedness, not under the Davidic kings, that Elijah the prophet carries out his ministry. But as we get closer to Elijah's time, the northern kings do not just imitate the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They get worse as they continue their stumbling toward exile. So the kingdom increasingly became not merely a declining kingdom or a divided kingdom, but also a depraved kingdom. The days of Elijah coincide with the rule of King Ahab in Israel, along with his wife Jezebel. Listen once again to how our passage describes the rule and reign of Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. There's that reference point of Jeroboam again. But as if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in those sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab considers the corrupted worship of Jeroboam as a trivial thing. He goes way beyond that. He, along with his wife Jezebel, turn from worshiping the Lord altogether and they worship Baal. And with likely encouragement from his pagan wife Jezebel, Ahab goes beyond what any of the kings before him had done in terms of his depravity and in terms of provoking the Lord to anger when he constructs an altar to Baal and places this altar in a house for Baal that he also constructed in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. So never mind going to the golden calves, the corrupted worship that's set up by Jeroboam and Dan and Bethel. You can worship Baal. And you can worship Baal in the house of Baal in Israel, in Samaria, the capital city in the heart of Israel. So just imagine a Christian leader today offering prayers to Allah, the false god of Islam, in the church. A Christian leader offering prayers to Allah, the false god of Islam. 
Imagine that happening, and that will give us a sense of the spiritual conditions in which Elijah steps in his ministry. That's how corrupted things are. Now, just for some background, Baal was regarded as the god of storms, sometimes depicted with a lightning rod in his hand and as thunder for his voice. And as the god of storms, he controlled the weather. And because he controlled the weather, he controlled fertility, the fertility of the land. And since Israel was located in an agricultural area, since they were an agrarian people dependent upon seasonal rains for their sustenance, Baal worship was advertised to them as something that would ensure the fertility of the ground and therefore productive harvest that would sustain them and sustain their children. And so this idea of worshiping Baal was a constant temptation for Israel because they needed these seasonal rains and Baal was presented as this god of the storms. But there's another reason Israel was tempted to Baal worship. Baal worship was connected to Asherah. Asherah is actually mentioned in verse 33. And Asherah was a female cohort with whom Baal would engage in sexual activity. And when they engaged in sexual activity, it would produce rains. And it just so happens that one of the ways Baal's worshipers could encourage Baal and Asherah to engage in this activity and bring rain was to engage themselves in sexual activity that would promote the activity of Baal and Asherah. They were doing this as an act of worship. And so Baal worship was a sexualized religion and for this reason it also produced a constant temptation for the people of Israel. Culturally declining, politically divided, and morally depraved. Such were the times of Elijah the prophet. Culturally declining, politically divided, and morally depraved. Sounds a lot like the 1960s. As a matter of fact, it sounds a lot like today. Culturally declining, politically divided, and morally depraved. We live in times marked by indicators of our own national decline. For example, students in our educational systems appear to be falling behind students in other industrialized countries in reading scores and math scores. Our healthcare system seems to be deteriorating and violent crime is perpetually increasing. One outlet has recently reported that major cities saw a 33% increase in homicides in the year 2020. Culturally declining, but we're also sharply divided politically. There's racial tensions that we have in our country. We are politically divided, as is evidenced by this map of the Electoral College of the 2020 presidential election. That's a divided people. We're divided as well, culturally declining, divided, and in our depravity, we are a hyper-sexualized culture, and we have rejected biblical morality, and in place of that, we have gone to view its opposite as something to be touted, to be celebrated and embraced. We've rejected biblical morality and taken its opposite as something to be celebrated and embraced. Our nation can be characterized as culturally declining, politically divided, and morally depraved. So we ought to be able to relate a little bit nationally to the times of Elijah the prophet, but it would be dangerously limiting, dangerously limiting to see only in Israel's decline, division, and depravity, something that's mirrored in our nation. Because remember that Israel was not just a nation in the Old Testament. 
Israel was the covenant people of God. It was the form of the church in the Old Testament. And so it's important for us to admit and to recognize the decline, the division, and the depravity that's mirrored in the church today. And we do, in fact, see this very thing. A recent survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries, uh, formerly led by R.C. Sproul, just last year, a survey came out suggesting a declining adherence to just basic fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith among those who self-profess to be evangelical, gospel-believing Christians. A declining adherence to basic doctrinal, fundamental truths. For example, to this question or to this statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The survey found that 30%, not of the general public, 30% of those who profess to be evangelical, gospel-believing Christians agreed with that statement. One in three professing Christians agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not a worthy object of our worship. Along similar lines to this statement, everyone sins a little, but most people, deep down in the recesses of our hearts, are good by nature. Almost half of the evangelical, self-professing, gospel-believing Christians believe that this was true, agreed with this statement. 5% were unsure. So that's actually more than half that either agreed or were unsure about this statement, that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. The Bible teaches that everyone is sinful and that the root level of a fallen heart is sinfulness, not goodness by nature. And to this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Stunningly, 42% of evangelical gospel professing Christians agreed with that statement. One third strongly agreed with it. One out of every three evangelical Christians who took this survey agreed with this statement. These people might as well just join Ahab and Jezebel and add Baal worship to this statement as well. So, declining a decline in the church but there's also division in the church as well there's been division in the church almost from the very beginning eastern churches and western churches have been divided since the year 1054 protestants and roman catholics have been divided since the 1500s and protestant churches are extensively splintered and continue to splinter oftentimes not over central kinds of doctrines protestant churches splitting over things like music and drums in worship, and more recently, over things like masks. Hardly central doctrines. So there's division, and there's also depravity. The frequency of sexual scandals in the church, instances of financial corruption and abuse speak of the presence of this depravity in the church, as does the amount of hatred and slander not directed against Christians on social media. We might anticipate that, but there's so much slander and hatred not directed against Christians on social media, but propagated by Christians on social media. It speaks of this depravity. And so here's the point. We don't get to say, it's a lot like Elijah's day out there. We don't get to say that. It's in here too. And it's in here 
because our hearts are infected with this drift towards spiritual decline. Our very own hearts are prone toward waywardness. Our hearts are infected with the poison of division and with the remnants of the depravity of our fallenness. We have these things in our own hearts. I don't get to exonerate myself from the decline, division, and depravity that's around me. Even though, in the words of songwriter Bill Maloney, who performed in our old sanctuary in 2012, says, my, my, how loudly we plead our innocence long after we've made our contribution. And that's true. We need to recognize and acknowledge our own part in that. But for all of this, for all of this that's been said, the situation is not hopeless. It's not a hopeless situation for Israel. It's not a hopeless situation for our nation. It's not a hopeless situation for the church. It's not a hopeless situation for you. It's not a hopeless situation for me. Because what a declining, divided, depraved nation needs and what a declining, divided, depraved church needs and what a declining, divided, depraved heart needs is exactly what we see unfolding here in 1 Kings. And that's basically this. God breaks into spiritual darkness with the light of his truth. That's why it's not a hopeless situation. God breaks into spiritual darkness with the light of his truth. And so our hope, just like the hope of Israel, is the light of God and his truth to break into our darkness and to reclaim and transform declining, divided, depraved hearts. But notice that when God breaks into this darkness with the light of his word, he does so through a person, through a messenger. He sends Elijah the prophet. But ultimately, he breaks through this darkness by sending a greater Elijah, a greater prophet, one who actually embodies the word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So notice that the Lord does not just ignore the spiritual wanderings of his people. In his grace, he pursues them by sending his word, he sends that word through a person, the, ultimately the word made flesh, Jesus our savior. He is the light and the hope of nations. He is the light and the hope of the church. He is the light and the hope of every human heart and he ultimately is the triumph of God. It's through him we can triumph over our decline and our waywardness because he raises us to new spiritual life through his resurrection and renews us by the spirit. He overcomes our division by reconciling us to the Father and one another through his work on the cross. And he purifies us from our depravity by cleansing us by his blood that he has shed on our behalf. And so we see the triumph of God in the ministry of Elijah the prophet. Hopefully we'll see that in the coming weeks as we continue this series. But we see ultimately the triumph of God, not through Elijah, but the one to whom Elijah is pointing us. We see the triumph of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But not only do we see the triumph of God through Jesus in a clearer way than we do in Elijah's ministry, we can participate in that triumph of God through Jesus. We can share in the victory that Jesus wins, but only by faith in him. So if you happen to be here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your savior, do so today. Acknowledge the decline and wayward tendencies of your own heart. Acknowledge the division 
that exists in your life, that you are at enmity with your creator and at enmity with others and not reconciled to them. Acknowledge those things and acknowledge your moral depravity, your sinfulness that renders you guilty before a holy and righteous God. Admit all of those things, but turn to Jesus who gives you victory and triumph over all of those things. But if you're here this morning and you are a professing believer, then claim the triumph that is yours. Claim that victory that Jesus has won for you over your decline by walking with him in faithfulness, growing in him and becoming more Christ-like. Claim that triumph over your division by living a reconciled life with God, by obeying him and a reconciled life with others by relationships that are characterized by grace, love, and forgiveness. And claim that triumph over your depravity by pursuing holiness and righteousness and purity through the one who is our greater Elijah and the one who gives us ultimately by his redemptive work the triumph of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly, acknowledging what's in our hearts by nature, that we tend to drift from you in decline, that unless you would stop that by your grace, we would continue to sink. We acknowledge our division, our enmity with you and others. We acknowledge our moral depravity in and of ourselves, but we also come to you celebrating your grace, that you have pursued us. You have pursued us in your word, and you have pursued us in the person of Jesus, and you have conquered all of those things in our hearts that have separated us from you, and you have reconciled us to yourself. You have made us righteous in him and forgiven us all of our sins, and we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus, who is our greater prophet and our greater Elijah. In his name we pray, amen.